0: Hello and welcome to ROI Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. And then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords.
1: And my name is John Keeley. This is a 356th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Danielle Cybulski author and podcaster who's going to talk about her book, Life in Medieval Europe, Fact and Fiction. The history buff for today is Brett Menard. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zap-Zapdell. Our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker.
0: This is the opening segment of our show called Farooq Danarin, and today we're going to be talking about medieval history, fact, and fiction with Danielle Sibolsky, author and podcaster. Danielle, why did you feel the need to write this book?
2: Oh, well, I always love to talk about medieval history, <laughs> but um, I think that when people watch movies or when they read books or that kind of thing about the Middle Ages, they always have questions about what it was like to actually be there, and uh, many times you don't get that kind of detail in a movie or something like that, so I wanted to kind of dig into the small details of medieval life, um, so that's why I wrote the book.
1: Okay. Um In creating a book like this, I always like to ask about the issue of um, resource. And and where did you decide to start from? I mean, uh, fact and fiction, medieval times are as vast as the imagination or facts can carry us. Where did you Mm -hmm. start as the starting point going, you know, this is where I really need to begin to start deciding between the fact or fiction?
2: Well, um, I get asked a lot of the same questions over and over again. or I see um, in the media that people have the same questions over and over again. and they or the same prejudices against this time period. Um, people think that people in the Middle Ages were stupid. That they didn't bathe, that they were hyper violent, that they were always forced into marriage, and that kind of stuff. So I just kind of started with general questions that I keep being asked, or things that I keep seeing wrong in the media that I I want to correct. <laughs> so I, that's where I started from.
0: Okay, um, Danielle, let's let's then start with some of those basics. Um, I, I'm kind of thinking of a of a dartboard, starting as close as we can get to to uh the individual and then spreading out into community and culture and so forth so talk to us a little bit about uh facts and fictions uh about the medieval home and uh the kinds of things that people would have and and uh what a what a sort of a daily life would be like because that's where the movies tend to to live that that you have these um you know, it, I, I'm always reminded of Monty Python with the uh, people groveling in the dirt, talking about this is some beautiful filth over here, and, <laughs> and so forth. So let's start there. Talk to us about some some fictions, and then give us some facts to counteract.
2: Yeah, well, I love um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail because um, they they were medievalists, a couple of them themselves, and so they understood right. what people got wrong about it. Filth is a good place to start. In fact, that's where I start the book. Um, people think that nobody had any baths; that they were afraid of bats, uh, in fact, during the Middle Ages, and that's really not true. Um, people did have bats. Um, they had baths within the town themselves, or they had baths within their castles, for example. For a normal person, they might bathe in a pond or a stream or a river. And we know about this because, well, some of the bathhouses still exist, and they were around for, since Roman times. They didn't go away. People kept using them. Um, We also know that people had bathtubs, for example, in their palaces because a couple of monarchs had caps to bring water to their bathtubs. Um, And King John of England actually had somebody in charge of his bathtub when he went on progress. So so we know that people were bathing. We know that common people were bathing as well because um, they sometimes drowned when they were trying to get clean. So we do have a lot of evidence for people bathing, for example, and that's the place I started at, because I do think people have this Monty Python idea of collecting so. <laughs> um, so that was the place to start. And I really got interested in all sorts of things, like um, what people did to brush their teeth, for example, uh, how they did their laundry, um, and that kind of stuff started me off. But for people who were just kind of living in everyday life, they they were a lot more like us than we might imagine. So a lot of people, especially peasants, had more of a say in who they could marry, for example, than we think they did. They could kind of pick within a pool of people, you know, that were acceptable. Um, When they were at home, they would play games. Um, They would read aloud to each other if they had that kind of uh, resource, if they could read, if they had a book. They played sports, they enjoyed plays. They were much like us. And I think that gets lost um, when we when we highlight things like uh, the biggest most extreme examples of, for example, violence from the Middle Ages. So that kind of thing. All right. they are more like us than we think. Okay. Uh, next questions
1: I have to deal with one is serious, and the other one you can totally blow off. The first one is cuisine. I mean, when uh, you see movies or these images of food, and of course, nutrients was a vital part of the middle ages as in all other eras movies presented that um the haves lived incredibly great and the have-nots were on the fringe of starving is this something you would consider to be accurate and the second question is did all the churches have the Holy Hand Grenades like in the Monty Python? Movie?
2: <laughs> no. Well, let's start with the easy one. No, there is no <laughs> Holy Hand Grenade here.
0: Unless you <laughs> lived in Antioch.
1: <laughs> but, but the but be, Holy yeah. Hand
2: Grenade, it looks a lot like relics or reliquaries that people had back in the day. So it's based on reliquaries where you'd have a religious relic, like a piece of a saint or a piece of the true cross, in, right. in something like that. So that's where the idea comes from. Um, but in terms of food, food is a big one that uh, is important to talk about, because if you go to a place that maybe I shouldn't name drop, and you think that it's going to be a feast like they had in the Middle Ages. Well, it, it's not. <laughs> things like turkey, <laughs> um,
3: right.
2: things like tomato soup, things like potatoes and sweet corn, none of those were available in Europe. So We get a lot of stuff wrong when we look at medieval feasting. In terms of whether the haves had more than the have-nots, yeah, for sure. The people who had more money had better food, of course. But it didn't mean that the food that regular people were eating was bland. It didn't mean that stuff that regular people were eating was rotten. They had access to all the sort of herbal stuff that we like to eat today, like parsley, sage, rosemary, thyme, that kind of stuff to make their food good. So it could be that, you know, it might be boring to eat sort of the same stuff every day, but it didn't have to be because they had a lot of access to the same type of herbs that we eat today to make our food tasty. They did have some combinations that we don't tend to have today, like mixing cinnamon and pepper, which is something that they did. Um, so that, if you try some medieval recipes, that it's a little bit strange to our palate, but it tastes really good.
1: Have you sort since you cooked have you ever mixed the cinnamon and, and pepper in some of your recipes? Sure. Um. <laughs> what's the flavor like what, what is it, is it it's, what's the kind of I mean I know it's impossible to describe is it spicy I mean what is it what is it like?
2: It's kind of well, I mean cinnamon, we often combine cinnamon with stuff like sugar to draw it out a bit more, right? right. I'm not a chef. I'm really really the farthest thing from a chef but it's just kind of surprising to have something that we, we imagine goes with sweet stuff like cinnamon and pepper together. So it's just kind of surprising, and maybe maybe complex is the word that we want.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say, and, and more people would recognize medieval spice palettes than, than you think. We just wouldn't use it in those foods. Um, what you think of as Christmas spices... Cinnamon oh. and allspice and nutmeg and things like that. Those yeah. were used all the time in everything. Cloves um, and ginger, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> so you've got you've got a, a, a different. It's not that we were un, that we would be unfamiliar eating a medieval dish. We probably just wouldn't expect to run into it in a pottage or in a pasty or something. You know, a, something along those lines. Something that is traditionally savory instead of sweet. Um, You know, we would be surprised that they're there, but even that probably shouldn't be a big surprise. If you're um, an Italian cook, it is very traditional to throw nutmeg into sauces. And people notice that there's something interesting, but they don't know what it is because most of us have never actually tasted the raw spices that we use every day. We we very rarely take a taste of what you know. Time most people wouldn't recognize it, but those things are there. So it's it's interesting because medieval medieval spice palettes are actually much more familiar to people. Just how they the foods they were used in would be unique, wouldn't you agree, Danielle?
2: Oh, I think so. And uh, I do think it's a good point that you're making that North American cooking is further from this than European cooking. So, yeah. right. you know, it would be more surprising to North Americans.
1: I, when I was in Australia years ago, the same spices that you're talking about, they very much put in everyday food. And it was an interesting flavor. So, I mean, I guess you could say it. it's back to your point, Danielle. It's, it's not as far from the Middle Ages today as you think.
2: Yeah, Most things aren't.
1: Well,
0: Danielle, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
1: In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television. Reaching more people. Touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station.
0: Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords.
1: And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. And our guest for today's show is Danielle Cybulski author and podcaster who's going to talk about her book, Life in Medieval Europe, Fact and Fiction. Our history book for today is Brett Menard. Brett, as an expert on medieval history, question is yours.
3: Thanks, John. Um, Danielle, we started off talking about things close to home, so let's talk a little bit about the community as a whole. What uh, do people tend to get confused um, about with regards to medieval
2: religion? Oh my goodness, that is a great question. <laughs> um, first of all, the thing the major thing that I think people get wrong about medieval religion is that they think there was only one in Europe. Um that they think that it was only Christian and that was it. But for much of the Middle Ages, uh, Spain was Muslim. Um, what we think of now as Spain was Muslim, is Islamic. Um, and there are also pockets of uh Jewish people all over Europe as well. And these people were all living together most of the time peacefully, some of the time with horrific violence, and that's what we hear about the most. But there were three, at least three major religions that were um, that were living in medieval Europe at the time. Um, another thing that people get wrong is that they think that the church was out to get people. <laughs> I think this is something that comes a lot from fiction. Um, you know, we'll read something like uh, something by Dan Brown, or people will play... Uh, Assassin's Creed, and they will think that the Church was out to get people. It was completely intolerant, and that was not the case. I mean, human beings, they do have good sides, they do have bad sides, and you do have people in the Church that were intolerant at the time, but most of the time, people were trying to save as many souls as possible. So, for example, if you were accused of heresy because people thought maybe you had cast a spell on someone else, or you, your religious practice was not Orthodox, the priests would give you some correction. They would tell you this is not how things are done, and they would ask you to correct it. They would give you penance. And if you took care of that and changed your ways, everything was fine. It's only if you were repeatedly following things that, that were not Orthodox doctrine, or if you were spreading ideas that weren't Orthodox, then you would be in trouble. Then you might be charged with heresy. But most of the time, people believed in things like fairies, and Jesus at the same time, and there was no problem with it. So I think people think that there's only one religion, and that it was very intolerant, and actually was much more flexible than people think. And it wasn't the only religion in Europe at the time.
0: Well, and Danielle, even even in terms of Christianity, you have a lot of homogenization going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the old uh, the old religions are are absorbed allowances are made maybe we don't call them fairies anymore maybe we call them cherubs or seraphim or whatever but you know we we did quite a bit of that in 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 hopes of of because it, it made for a quieter populace
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly it's very hard to step out people's beliefs it's a lot easier to integrate them um, and so that was something that was done a lot. And people didn't really get hugely upset about it as long as it wasn't interfering with the basic, really important tenets of Christianity. So, yeah, it was more flexible than we think.
0: Yeah, and um, and so, Danielle, I'm going to follow up with that. So you've talked about religion. What about the, the social interaction of um, villages and the relationship of the village to the manor um you know so those sort of socio-political relationships in in a traditional medieval setting
2: oh okay this is kind of big <laughs> um, so we do have uh things that people might not realize about the the social constructs of the time is uh especially earlier in the middle ages there was slavery which people don't tend to like to think about in terms of europe but there was slavery that was a thing that happened um, and gradually it was more people were were serfs, which meant they were tied to the land, um, so they would have a lord that would be in charge of them, and they'd have to ask that lord for permission to do things like get married, and that lord would have some, some control over them in terms of making judgments if they had conflicts and that kind of thing. Um, but one thing I think people don't really realize is, there is more reciprocity in the relationship between, for example, lords and serfs or lords and peasants um, and kings as well, where like, if if the king is going to take care of you, that means that he has to also be good to you. So there's more, it's, there's kind of a reciprocal relationship that people don't really realize in that if a king gives you land, for example, to live on, you have to give him military service. But at the same time, if you're going to be good to the king, he has to be good to you as well. And that went down all the way down the chain. That is something I think people need to realize. There's more reciprocity than we think.
1: A question, um, and this might be really pretty vast. So any direction you want to go with this, I have no problem with. But what about the Middle Age stereotypes of the crusades? Like you were saying, Christianity isn't the only game in town. And uh, people tend to think that the Middle Ages really only happened in northern Europe. Uh, what hmm. are some of the myths out there that you see with movies and others about the actions with the crusades? Um, I must admit there's several rotten Robin, uh, rotten Robin Hood movies I can <laughs> think of yes. along this line.
2: Um, so the crusades, uh, again, people think that they're very black and white. Um, and that they are kind of uh, they're kind of zero-sum, where if you're a Christian, you could not be friends with the Muslim, you couldn't trade with them, like nothing like this. Whereas if you were a Christian, you were a crusader, you went to the Holy Land, you'd see that the, the towns that were actually established in the Holy Land had people who were um, Islamic, they had people who were Jewish, and there was no way to survive unless you were actually going to intermingle with these people as well. So it wasn't like uh, a firm line. At the same time, there was a lot of intolerance. The Crusades were there. They were established to remove the Muslims from the Holy Land so that Christians could take over Jerusalem, especially in the sites of pilgrimage. But there were times when Muslims and Christians worked together. For example, when the Mamluks were a threat, Muslims and Christians were like, we need to work together to defeat the Mamluks. They didn't actually end up fighting together, but they were ready to do that. So again, there's the the Crusades they draw a very firm line in the sand where, you know, the the stuff that we see that's written down is that we are not going to tolerate the other religion. But on the ground, between people there is more human interaction than you can see from this kind of uh, black and white approach that we see in history
0: well and and danielle is it maybe the biggest myth about the crusades the fact that the europeans won them
2: <laughs> they, well first of all there is no winning in war i think um, but secondly yeah the christ the christians ended up being booted out of the holy land <laughs> they did not win it um they ended up being pushed out by by muslims and and by the mamluks there is no Christian presence in the Holy Land um, after uh, the 14th century, I would think, although Crusades are not not where I spend a lot of my time, but yeah the- the Christians did not win anything
0: <laughs> right but but I mean <laughs> it, if you watch the movies, obviously we win all the time, you know yeah. and and in everything goes well and and uh Richard the Second is the greatest thing since sliced bread and you know all of Jay, that right
1: nobody likes a heathen winning <laughs> I mean, Brett, you've got a question
0: I do so.
3: One of the other areas that there's been a lot of recent research on is people of color in the Middle Ages. When we watch a lot of medieval movies, they tend to be very, very white. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So first of all, (laughs) let me say that, like, not everyone who watches crusade movies is Christian. So, you know, it's, it's, it's... The idea of a heathen is really based on the eye of the beholder. Um, The idea of people who are uh, people of color in the Middle Ages. We do have evidence of people of color in the Middle Ages. You don't see that very often in the movies. Um, And especially there's this idea uh, that the white supremacists are going with that that everybody was white, everybody was Christian, and that's not the case. We know through um, the Roman Empire there is lots of, uh, integration of people from different areas of the world. The Roman Empire was spread across Europe. So these people from different areas were also spread across Europe. So we know that people of color were already there because of the Roman Empire. And the Vikings were also people that traded and enslaved across the world. They brought people of color up further further north and also Viking people went further south, so there's mixing there as well. But there's mixing at different times. For example, um, Louis the IX went on crusade, and it went badly for him, <laughs> but he had a whole bunch of people convert to Christianity who were um, Muslim, Middle Eastern people, and he brought them to France, and he, uh, he planted them in different areas in France so that they would not go back Islam. He was invested in their staying Christian. But I mean, you, so you have Middle Eastern people who are in different smaller towns in France, uh, all over the place. And especially if you have a trade center, you're going to see people of color because the trade routes went all over the world except for to the Americas. So people of color were everywhere. It wouldn't have been a surprise unless you were in a very, very rural, sheltered area to see people from from all over the world. And so I think this idea of it being a completely lily-white time is dangerous, but it's also inaccurate.
0: Yeah, and Danielle, since you brought them up, um, talk a bit about the Vikings, since they have become a hot uh, entertainment um, market, so to speak. Uh, What are you seeing that, that seems to be uh wrong and and are they getting anything right in in the HBO series and the movies and all the rest of that sort of thing.
2: <laughs> well, I don't watch the show Vikings and that's not because I'm not interested in Vikings. That my, my favorite century is the fourteenth century, so the Vikings are pretty much done by that point. But it's because I didn't particularly like any of the characters. <laughs> that's <Right. why. laughs> um but white supremacists are taking up viking uh culture to kind of spread the idea that people were just white at the time and that's not definitely not true um there's also a huge uh a huge emphasis on the viking's violence um, and it kind of makes you forget the fact that a lot of the time they were farming <laughs> so, right. I mean, or fishing right <laughs> yeah the word Viking refers to, we think it refers to, their raiding. And so you have a whole bunch of people from Scandinavian countries that are referred to only by their violence. And that doesn't really seem fair. So, so they brought this wrong about Vikings. Um, as long as we, I think we can dig into them, we can like them, but we should be aware that there's a lot more to them than just their raiding. And maybe that's kind of the worst aspect of their culture.
1: I I married in Scandinavia and I think they're spot on. <laughs> no, All right. Kidding. No, I'm kidding. No, quick uh, question. Um you talked about education and the variances there. What do you think are some of the biggest stereotypes with the levels of education in the Middle Ages?
2: Um, I think that more people were literate than we imagine. But there still wasn't a huge amount of literacy. And what people forget is many times uh, people learned to read or they were read to by their mothers. So it was the church that was in charge of most of the education, uh, formal education. So you'd go to a church school if you're a boy, you'd be uh, learning to be a cleric. You might be tutored, especially if you're a noble. But most of the time, people are learning at their mother's knee. And you see that in books of ours, especially pictures of the virgin mary have her with a book because it wasn't a rare thing to have a woman that was teaching uh the children how to read and then the other thing that i'd like people to to realize is i remember someone saying that that servants or peasants wouldn't be familiar with chaucer for example because he wrote stuff that would be told or read to the royal court well the royal court is being served by People who are not royals, <laughs> you have servants who are bringing the food, they'd be hearing the stories as well. They'd be telling the stories and sharing the stories. So you can have people who may not be literate that are familiar with the stories that we find in literature as well. So yeah.
0: Danielle, it is customary for us to give our guests the last word on our show. So why do you think knowing the facts and myths about medieval history is relevant in today's world?
2: I think that it's relevant, and I say this in the book, and I say this everywhere, because I think that it's a lot easier to believe stereotypes than to believe in the complexity of human beings. And so when we look at the Middle Ages and we see these people who we've always known are stupid and violent and dirty and all that, when we look at them and see that they were complex and that they are a lot more like us than we think, then looking at that example in the past that's familiar to us, perhaps as part of our own culture, then we can extend that to looking at other cultures. So instead of just jumping to stereotypes, looking at people who are living today in another country, we can just be familiar with the idea that stereotypes can be very wrong and we can look at other people with complexity and humanity compassion. That's why I think it's relevant.
0: (laughs) All right, um, Brad, I'm going to let you uh, add one more in. We have about a minute left. So why do you think this is important in today's world?
3: Well, uh, I think that far too many people get their history from entertainment rather than from experts, and Hollywood and TV studios are far more interested in what looks good than being accurate, and even authors need to make some allowances to move a story up ahead, And we see that in contemporary fiction. And then it floors people that, oh, this author did not spend six years tracking down recipes to make sure he knew exactly
0: what was being served at a particular feast. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
1: program the award-winning relevant or irrelevant is heard friday evenings at 9 30 p.m central time on kala hd2 or 106.1 fm in the quad city area you can listen over the air or anywhere via tunein.com to hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find relevant or irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes
0: our 356th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and written and performed by Mark zapp My name is
1: Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Danielle Cybulski, author and podcaster, who took the time out of her busy schedule to discuss with us her book, Medieval History, Fact and Fiction. The history buff for today's show is Brett Menard. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or K A L A. We would like to good. we would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Lesotho proverb Hotso Pulanawa, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.